Listener, do you like Black Label? The main feed episodes? Do you want more? Well, the only way for Obscura to expand is through your help. But I haven't been the best at promoting ways for you to support us. If you enjoy our content and you want more, consider joining our Patreon. It's the best way to help Obscura expand. There you'll find many episodes not on the main feed. With enough support, Obscura can continue to expand as a show. To support us, head to patreon.com slash obscurecrimepodcast. That's patreon.com slash obscurecrimepodcast. Specific, detailed confession that you made to Frank Hogan and I, which we were shocked about in the jail, and which you went into terrific detail about how you went about decapitating her, carving of her body, how you either sat down and cut off every finger and thumb and appendage on her hands and threw them all in the toilet and flushed it at one time, uh, and then combined that with the searches on the internet, the fact that you had done searches about having sex with dead people, things of that nature. And then John jokingly said, well, what if it's a body? We checked it out. We could only see the head and uh, the left hand sticking out of the mud had rings on it. And apparently she had died screaming. What goes on inside the minds of individual people is something we don't have open access to. The human brain is a physical mass of white and gray matter that can be measured and observed, but the human mind is a wonder of complexities that we cannot see or touch. The innermost thoughts, desires, and fantasies of each of us are only available to others, if actively shared and laid out for inspection. Yet the self-conscious and withdrawn, the perceived deep thinkers are the personalities we fear the least. When true selves are hidden from view, they are isolated in an eternal loop with only introspection to keep them in balance and within acceptable boundaries. True personalities can be shielded from public view, layered with the false representation chosen to be presented. The more twisted and deranged those inner thoughts and desires are, the more fictitious those layers will be. Depravity runs deep within those who possess it, buried down so it's obscured. Circles like a shark waiting for the right moment and opportunity to strike. In 2011, in a university city southeast of Atlanta, an unlikely killer pounced in the dead of night. The gruesome acts this individual carried out took the life of a beautiful young woman and left her remains dumped and discarded. This is an individual who built up to this vicious murder. Watching like a hunter under the cover of darkness, each stage was passed through until the ultimate prize was within reach. This killer came out of nowhere, 
The power and control of taking a life was a desirable goal. Sexual urges and sick fantasies drove this killing. The thrill of the game and concealing, lying, and deceiving were the welcome aftermaths. On June 30th, 2011, at 12.52 a.m., Mercer University's campus police department received a phone call from a worried student. Ashley Morehouse had just months earlier graduated from Mercer's School of Law. She reported that her friend and classmate, Lauren Giddings, had gone missing. Lauren hadn't been seen or heard from in five days. Mercer University is situated in Macon, in the state of Georgia. The city lies around 85 miles to the southeast of Atlanta. Beautiful, imposing buildings are set within a backdrop of tall green trees, surrounded by neatly presented expensive Victorian homes. Directly across the road from Mercer School of Law is an apartment block called Barrister's Hall. It was here that 27-year-old Lauren Giddings had lived since August 2008, when she started her law degree. A group of her friends had collected outside apartment 2 that night, trying to find out where Lauren was. She'd been on a night out with them on June 25th, since then, there had been nothing but silence. Her spare key, hidden under a flower pot on the apartment's balcony, gave them access to check inside. Stephen McDaniel, the 25-year-old fellow law student who lived in the apartment next door, came out to see what was going on. Learning that Lauren was missing, he too became concerned and followed the group inside. Lauren's keys, purse, and cell phone all lay in her apartment. But there was no sign of Lauren. Lauren was a beautiful, intelligent, strong-minded young woman from the city of Laurel in Maryland. She had a magnetic personality drawing everyone to her. She too had graduated from law school on May 11th and had been studying for the Georgia Bar exam, except for the end of July. She loved her little two-bedroom apartment at Barrister's Hall. There were two apartment blocks in the complex. Both contained eight apartments, two at the front upstairs and downstairs, and two at the rear of each building. Lauren's apartment sat facing Georgia Avenue, the busy road that separated the apartments from the law school. A flight of stairs led up to the balcony giving access to her apartment and the one next door. She had been excited to move in back in 2008. Her mom Karen had visited and thought the complex was both adorable and safe. In receiving the missing persons report, Macon police officers were dispatched to Barrister's Hall to take a look around for themselves. Officers arrived at the scene followed by Sergeant Doug Copeland at around 1 a.m. After initial inquiries, they made contact with Detective Sean Bridger and Detective David Patterson to let them know of the report. Paperwork was drawn up and the investigation into Lauren Giddings' disappearance was set to officially commence the following morning. At 8.40 a.m. on that last day in June, Detective Patterson spoke with the Assistant District Attorney, Gray Wood, and requested the help of the Macon Crime Lab. Lauren was outgoing and social, she never went out of contact like this. Vanishing without a trace was suspicious and deeply worrying. At 9 a.m., he arrived at Barrister's Hall, along with Sergeant Steve Gatlin from the city's crime lab. Neither had any idea what they were about to find. Within minutes of arriving outside apartment 2, Detective Patterson realized he could smell a distinctive odor. Serving in law enforcement since 1996 and assigned to violent crime since 2001, his experience told him immediately what the smell was. It was the smell of death and human decomposition. Strong and potent, it is an odor that stings and lingers in the nostrils. It's a smell that once experienced is never forgotten. 
As officers began a search of the area, it was the spot just below Lauren's apartment that attracted attention. There lay the large flip-lid garbage cans for the apartment block. One already had flies swarming around the lid, desperately trying to gain access to what was inside. Sergeant Gatlin gently opened the garbage lid. The smell that escaped only confirmed what he already knew. Inside was a large wrapped-up package surrounded in layers of black trash bags. Officers carefully removed and opened the package. Nestled inside was a human female torso. There was no head attached. In place of limbs were bloody stumps. Where they had been hastily removed, the torso was naked except for a pair of con shorts. Forensic testing would provide the final confirmation, but it seemed very clear. The missing person investigation and search for Lauren Giddings was now moved under the grim heading of homicide. The scene was sealed off and the Macon Police Department set up a mobile command center in the parking lot. A large truck for coordinating the investigation and the crime scene. As the news broke that a body had been found at Barrister's Hall, news anchors began flooding the parking lot area, trying to get more on the story. The female torso was removed from the scene and transported to the office of the medical examiner in Macon. Dr. Galtney Kraft carried out the post-mortem later that day. He found a number of hair samples on the abdomen of the torso and on the back of the shorts. Long blonde hairs were present mixed with long brown hairs. All drenched in decomposition fluid from the body. All were carefully cataloged and preserved as evidence for further testing. As part of the investigation, detectives began interviewing the group of friends who had gathered to search for Lauren. And those who lived at the Barrister's Hall apartments... Sergeant Chapman knocked on Stephen McDaniel's door not long after the female torso had been discovered in the garbage can downstairs. Along with Lauren's friends, Stephen was taken to the detective bureau in Macon for an informal interview. Detectives wanted Stephen's permission to search his apartment for any signs of Lauren. It was permission he was not keen to give. Stephen had moved into the apartments the same week as Lauren. He'd lived next door to her for those last three years and considered Lauren to be his friend. The two were opposite individuals, both in personality and in appearance. Lauren was tall, with long blonde hair and a charming, radiant smile. She was bright, outgoing, and friendly. She believed in the underdogs of this world. She wanted to be a public defender, helping those who may not be in a position to be able to help themselves. Lauren's values were empathy and compassion, Values she was introduced to early in her school life and deepened for her through her devout Catholic faith. Stephen was a character in stark contrast. He was quiet and introverted. He was socially awkward and generally described as a bit of a misfit. Highly intelligent, he was dedicated to his studies, spent most of his time alone in his apartment, shunning the active social life that Mercer Law School offered. To access their apartments, Stephen and Lauren shared an outside stairwell and front balcony. They'd pass each other regularly, on their way in or out. Lauren would stop and chat, try to encourage Stephen to come out of his shell and join in on the social activities going on. Stephen appreciated the attention. Stephen was no doubt attracted to Lauren. She was smart, desirable, and had an elegant confidence about her. She was a down-to-earth girl was caring to everyone she met. It was almost impossible not to like Lauren Giddings, 
Stephen stood shorter than Lauren's six-foot height, slightly built. He had bushy large brown hair that went to his shoulders. A little unkempt it was a feature that made him stand out, enabled him to be spotted easily in a crowd. Coupled with his awkward social nature, Stephen didn't have many friends, but wasn't disliked amongst his classmates. He was just labeled as an oddball, a few gave much thought to. During that first interview with Stephen, Detective Patterson noticed some marks on his face that seemed curious. Well, you understand that we're trying to locate Lauren. She's missing. And uh, you stated that you're willing to do anything to help me. I am. If I can help, I will, but... Did you hurt your nose or something? Where? The red mark on your nose right there. Uh-huh. How'd you get that red mark on your nose? Uh-huh. It's in a mirror. You might look it up again. What's that right there? Hmm. Huh? I scratched myself in my sleep, I think. You scratched yourself in your sleep? That's a big old scratch or something, ain't it? You don't remember when that happened? Hmm. Huh. All right, come on. Noted for later, the detective went back to getting Stephen's agreement to his apartment being searched. Stephen said he had firearms in his home and didn't want anyone snooping. After being told of how they needed to search for Lauren, he eventually agreed to let officers in. He was driven back to Barrister's Hall. While Detective Patterson was walking through Stephen's apartment, he knew about the torso that had been found downstairs. Stephen did it. As he slowly walked around the small space, he took a mental note of the items he was seeing. A large samurai sword in Stephen's bedroom, a knife with a blade that was over a foot long, also in his bedroom, a semi-automatic rifle, two handguns on top of his bed. As the detective left, Stephen locked up and walked across the parking lot, with intentions to go over the road to the law school. On the way... He was stopped by reporters and a camera crew, there to capture the investigation unfolding into Lauren's disappearance. They asked him if he knew Lauren. With the cameras rolling, Stephen began to talk. Yeah, Lauren was my neighbor. Um, We're just trying to find out where she is at this point. I mean, no one has seen her since Saturday. I mean, the last time anyone heard from her was an email that she sent out, and... I mean, no one's heard from her since. And did you see her hang out with anyone at the time and anything like that? I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, you always hear noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer? Yeah, she and I, were, we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see? Her? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because, I mean, we went, at, we went over, one of her friends had a key, we went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss, but... I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we, we just don't know where she is. Stephen was detailed as he explained what he knew about Lauren's disappearance. He was talkative, 
He appeared concerned and bewildered at what had happened to his neighbor. He explained how he and her friends had looked in the apartment and found nothing. How they tried to figure out what could have happened to her, but nobody knew. The reporter then asked him about the body that had been found just hours earlier. She assumed Stephen already knew. His reaction came as a surprise. What about um, in the like the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? I, I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. That's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. You've been studying for the bar? Yeah, I... No one had seen her since Saturday because I, we all just... There's not a whole lot of interaction unless we're doing classes. Right. And she was doing the online version of it. You all so, studied together, though? I, no. We were in... There's, there's two different people that... There's two companies that provide it. Captain provides it and Barbary provides it. I signed up with Barbary and I've been doing the lectures that they have in the mornings. She was doing the Kaplan online, so I hardly ever saw her. I, mean, I would see her like, go out running, but I. What time would she go out running? I I don't even know when. Was it at I, night or morning? I, I saw her like midday a, a couple weeks ago. I mean, that was the last time I saw her was come back from the bar prep on the main campus because we got moved over there for a week or two. But she normally would run. That yeah, I mean, that she, she, she ran all the time. I mean, she, she had a group that she would go running with. I mean, I, I, I don't know anyone that would want to hurt her. She was as nice person as there is. I, Was she moving soon? Did you know anything about her? Yeah, yeah. She she was going to be moving out uh, today. She was supposed to move out today because someone else was going to be moving into her apartment. New Boston. Do you know if she was like? Where is she from? Is she uh, from Maryland? Yeah, she's from up in Maryland. Yeah, she's from Maryland. Yeah, I mean, she she was from up in Maryland. I mean, all her family was there, as far as I know. I mean, she. What's going on in your mind right now? Like, what are you thinking? Why would anyone do this? Shit, didn't hear anything. No. Anybody? I. <laughs> yeah, I just heard something. Maybe I could have held it. <laughs> okay, don't worry. Do you want to sit down for a second? Get something to drink? The news of a body being found at the apartment complex stunned and dazed Stephen. Lauren, his next door neighbor who he considered to be a friend, had been murdered and dismembered. He was shaken. When he returned to talk with the reporter again, the emotion in his voice gave away his anguish. Do you know if a bunch of her friends are getting together or anything? I mean, that's how I found out that she was missing. We, a bunch of her friends came over 
yesterday night around midnight and they they couldn't they hadn't seen her since Saturday, so they were trying to find out where she was. So they were knocking on neighbors' doors and stuff? I, no, they, they went in. They had a key to her apartment, and they checked around, didn't see anything out of place. I mean, it was locked when everyone got there. That was midnight? Yeah, around midnight, and then we went, we went over to law school to see if maybe she was over in the, the library studying or something. And we, we looked up in the study rooms on the third floor, and there was uh, no one there. And we came back. We looked around and just trying to find any anything to figure out where she was. She doesn't have any family in Georgia. I I don't know. I as far as I know, every all of her family is from in Maryland. Have you met her family before? I, I, there there was one time that I met them. They came down first year. She she had a little dog, a little brown dog, that she would uh, exercise out in front of the law school, and it got hit as she was coming across the road. I I heard the car hit it and ran out, and she was there crying. And we thankfully there was someone who came along who knew a vet or something, and they helped that. And the her family came down. I think a, a couple weeks after that or something, I met them just briefly. But I we we've been trying to figure out she has a boyfriend up in Atlanta, but I someone called her called him and he hadn't heard from her. And just no no one could figure out where she was. Yeah, she went over to. Uh, couple friends house Garen Mueller and Joe Cairns they live over on Walnut and I mean, they they said that she was over there in the morning and then that was the last time that anyone we've been able to find out from had seen her she hadn't mentioned what she was going to do that day or anything uh, we uh, Joe he got onto her computer last night to see if she had said anything she'd sent an email out to some people that afternoon, talking about like going out to eat or something, and the last thing that anyone there was an email that she sent out after ten that night, where she she sent to I think it was someone in Atlanta, a friend of hers in Atlanta, and he she said that she she was afraid in her apartment that she thought that someone had tried to break in on Thursday night. And uh, she, she was afraid to stay in there. But where did you hear? Where did you hear that from? From Joe? No, he he pulled it up and we we read it off the screen. And she has said that to a friend in Atlanta. Yeah, I, I can't remember his name. But and you hadn't heard anything on Thursday night. No, she no. never came to you to tell you anything. No, I. I if she had, I, I could have done something. I. I could have lent her a handgun. I've I've got a little handgun that I have for defense, and yeah, I mean something. Yeah, I mean, if she was afraid in her apartment, then I mean, get her out of there. Is that, her, that that's what she said in the email. She thought that someone had tried to break into her apartment. She said like Megan Hoodlums tried to break into my apartment on Thursday night. Is that her car parked there? The Chevy? No. Car? No. Um. 
I think that's the detective's car, Detective well, her Patterson. Car's not even there? No, it, it was here earlier, and they they towed it. I mean, it had been there for days, and then they towed it to I guess look through, see if there was. Yeah. How did you find out that something that happened was wrong with the police here? Was it like when you walked up a little while ago? Or? No, I mean, we the police were called last night, and they came. And they looked around. They didn't see anything. I mean, they went in. We looked around the place. Uh, no sign of a struggle. No sign that anyone had broken in. Just nothing. Just she was gone. I mean, all of her stuff was there. Her ID was there. Her wallet was there. Despite appearances, this interview was not at all what it seemed. Stephen's astounded, flustered appearance and shaky voice while the cameras were rolling were in their entirety a performance a brazen, bare-faced act to wallow in the attention while throwing people off the scent. It was a production, engineered to gain sympathy for his apparent turmoil over what had happened, to have the community, the police and the wider audience feel sorry for this gentle boy next door who simply wanted to find his friend safe and well. He was exploiting people's kindness and compassion for his own gain. And then this morning they knocked on my door. They were looking around trying to find anything. And a few, a few of the other friends, Burpee uh, um, and Garen and Ashley, they were here. They were here last night and they'd come back this morning. And I just went out and talked with them and they... And then they moved us all over to the side and they bust us all down to the department and kept us there until I got back just a little while ago. And, yeah, they, they took statements trying to find out if anyone had seen anything, if anyone had heard anything when the last time anyone saw it was. Now, they haven't confirmed, at least not with us, that it, it was um, that they found. Are you holding out any hope right now? I, mean, I, I hope, but I mean, if, if they found it on on the property somewhere, you hadn't heard anything about a body until you were talking to us. No, no. As far as any of us knew, they they were still trying to just find her. I mean, we got an email this morning from some people that live on the other side of Kroger, on the other side of the river, that they had seen her in the past running in that area. We thought maybe someone had snatched her over there. Stephen McDaniel presented himself as a shy and meek individual, a young man with a hesitancy to interact with the outside world, an introvert who preferred his own company, his video games and his internet searches to fill his time and satisfy himself. He was mild and obliging, he was described as a loner. Stephen McDaniel was dull, studious and intelligent, an offbeat and an oddball. He was simply an individual who had faded into the background. His big hair might have been recognizable, but his personality was wimpish. This is how the outside world saw Stephen. This is how Lauren Giddings saw Stephen. Living next door to him for three years, she had become used to seeing him on the stairwell they shared on the balcony coming in and out of their own apartments. There was nothing threatening about him. In all likelihood, Lauren with her compassionate personality 
felt sorry for Stephen. She had no idea that just months after graduating from law school, he would break into her apartment and take her life. Before butchering her body and dumping her body parts in different locations, Stephen McDaniel, the awkward and drab guy next door, would strike when no one was looking. The most unsuspecting of villains, he would be unmasked, literally in the process of his appalling acts of violence. Just days before he stood in front of those cameras, Stephen McDaniel had murdered and dismembered another human being. The officers were not supposed to find Lawrence Torso on that day. Just two hours more, and the garbage would have been emptied by the truck due to that location on that very morning. Stephen's shock at the news of the body being found was not surprise and horror. It was panic. This was not part of his plan. He thought he was going to get away unscathed while soaking up the sympathy as being the next-door neighbor of the girl who was murdered. His carefully built plan, his foundations of pretense to her friends, the police and those television cameras were now under threat. Instead of shrinking away from the cameras after discovering police officers had found Lauren's body, Stephen McDaniel headed straight back to them. He must complete his act, finish his performance to hammer home that he played no part, that he was devastated, unable to understand who could do such a thing to such a lovely girl. All the while, it was him, Stephen McDaniel, who was fully capable for the murder of Lauren Giddings. His on-the-spot performance didn't fool everybody. Macon police detectives saw the footage as it aired. Their thoughts were not of sympathy for a young man who has lost his friend. They were of suspicion, of doubt, and a gut feeling that came with years of experience dealing with the deceptive and manipulative offenders. Stephen McDaniel was now their prime suspect for murder. After his media interview, officers coaxed Stephen into the mobile command center asking him to remain there while further investigations were being carried out. Under the constant watchful eye of police officers, Stephen didn't know his cover was blown. At around 2 p.m. that afternoon, dog handler Tracy Sargent arrived on the scene with two human remain detection dogs. The canines are trained to detect the odors that emit from corpses, human remains, human tissue, and bodily fluids. They were gently walked around the apartment complex, allowing them to explore, follow any scents they picked up. Cadaver dogs are trained to bark when they find something to alert their handler to possible evidence. These two dogs alerted eight times at Barrister's Hall, twice in Lauren's apartment at her front door and inside her bathroom, twice in apartment number one that was currently empty and sat directly below Lauren's apartment. They alerted twice in Stephen's apartment, in his bathroom, and his bedroom. The final location where the dogs alerted was the laundry room of the apartment complex. Following on from the dogs' alerts, Macon Police Department crime scene investigators began testing using luminol. The presence of blood at the crime scene, its pattern, location, and volume can break a case wide open. Lauren's apartment Investigators sprayed luminol around the bathroom area, in the bathtub, the sink, and on the floor. When they switched the lights off, they were presented with a sea of luminous blue. All around the bathtub, 
up the walls and across the floor. Blood splatters reached up the walls by almost four feet. This small room had been a bloodbath. That evening, the first of seven search warrants were issued to allow officers to fully search and seize items from Stephen's apartment that may be relevant to the investigation. Stephen was taken out of the mobile command center and driven down to the detective bureau for further questioning. He remained a person of interest, and the individual this investigation was most focused on. He sat in an interview room. His earlier chatty, helpful, and talkative demeanor was now gone. The Stephen McDaniel making detectives were now presented with was a robotic, repetitive, and childlike version who rarely deviated from simple one-word answers. All right. I just got to ask you a few more questions. Okay. Uh, you came down earlier tonight. Me and you talked. All right. You don't have any weapons on you, do you? No. That's just you are. What's wrong? You know I'm Detective Patterson, right? Yes. Do you remember? Put your hands up here. You remember us talking yes. earlier tonight? Right? Yes. You remember me earlier in the day? Yes. When we came down here and talked a little bit and then we left? Yes. Okay. I need to know about this girl right here. You know her? Yes. Who is that? Lauren Giddings. Does she live next door to you? Yes. When's the last time you seen her? Two or three weeks ago. Okay. Was you friends with Lauren? Yes. Look at me when you talk to me, son. Okay? Was you friends with her? Yes. Close friends? We were good I friends. mean, y'all were friends, right? Both yes. of y'all were law students. You're studying to be an attorney, right? Yes. What kind of law do you want to go into? Criminal law? Yes. Civil? Is that what you want to do for a living? Yes. Okay. Are you almost finished? Yes. Okay. So you don't have too much more to do, right? No. All right. Are you going to stay here in Macon? I don't know. Did you used to work at the district attorney's office in Macon? Yes. Was you on the prosecutor side or the defense side? Prosecutor. So you were on our side. Yes. <laughs> right. You never worked on the other side? No. Did you like it when you were down there? Yes. Uh, got along with everybody? Yes. Okay. And you've lived next to Lauren for a long time? Yes. Okay. Do you know where she's at tonight? No. Hmm? No. Have you ever seen her with that dress on? No. You have no idea where she's at? No. Okay. If something happened to Lauren and you know, you need to tell me. If you know something. Because I need to know. Because her family's down here want to know what happened to her. I don't know. You don't know? No. That's what you want me to tell her mother and her father, that you don't know. I don't know. Not that you're sorry that she's missing. Not that you've been trying to help me all day find her, but you just wanted me to tell her I don't know. I don't know. Are you a sorry piece of shit that you want me to tell her that? You got your ass on that fucking news and stood out there and gave a media report that her mother saw about her missing daughter. 
And you want me to sit there and tell them that you don't know. Is that what you want me to tell them? Because you're all over the news. You sure stood out there and ran your mouth to the news media. But now you're going to get out here and you don't fucking know. You know. You're just a sorry piece of shit that don't give a fuck. Right? Yeah. Well, why'd you tell the media everything? Do you need to see what you told the media today? It was on the 11 o'clock news. Well, I'm asking you. Tell me. I want to know. I don't know where she is. That ain't what you told the media. You didn't stand in front of that camera and say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Stephen had just completed law school with a desire to specialize in criminal law. This young man not yet 26 years old, knew the criminal justice system. He understood the different kinds of evidence, how a crime scene is processed, and where the pitfalls are that offenders generally fall into when trying to conceal their deeds. He was known in the local district attorney's office in Macon. Now those he had worked with were watching events unfold in disbelief. The media interview Stephen so willingly gave served his own self-ego in an opportunistic maneuver he thought was clever. That move, however, would be the start of his downfall. Now inside an interview room, he shriveled into himself. His unnatural posture, controlled and repetitive answers, laid the groundwork for suspicions to grow. He drew detectives straight to him. Now Stephen McDaniel was cornered like a naughty child who had been caught. Unable to think as quickly as detectives questioned him, he remained stoic, false, and quiet, repeating the same words and phrases in response to every question put to him. Listener, as a leader in the CBD industry, CBDMD is committed to providing high-quality, THC-free CBD oil products. Whether you're gunning for a raise or an Olympic gold medal, You need to stay at the top of your game, and with so many world-class professional athletes turning to CBDMD, you can be sure you're getting a safe, clean product. From tinctures to topicals to bath bombs and even pet products, they've got something for everyone. I personally am blown away by the CBD Freeze on offer. I've been using it on my back and shoulders, and the soreness just seems to melt away in minutes. And hey, to make it even easier to discover the potential of CBD for yourself, CBDMD is offering our listeners 25% off your purchase when you use the promo code Obscura at checkout. Once again, that's CBDMD.com, promo code Obscura. For 25% off your order of premium CBD oil products from CBDMD. I'm asking you questions. Where's Lauren? Yes, you do know. You do know. And everybody in Macon knows you knows because you got your sorry ass on the news and told everybody. So every friend you have in Macon knows that you know. Everybody you go to school with, every one of your professors, everybody. Think you're gonna be able to walk down the street tomorrow and nobody bother you? Hmm? 
Think nobody's gonna come over and knock on your door to see if you want to talk to me again? I don't know. Oh, they're gonna be over there, brother. So this little act that you're doing right now ain't working with me. Okay? Because you didn't have no problem talking to the media. So you need to snap out of it and tell me what the hell happened so we can move on. I don't know. Well, how many times are you going to say I don't know? Hmm? How many times are you going to say it? I need your help in finding her. What do we need to do? What do we need to do that we haven't done? I don't know. You don't know? So if you had this case, you wouldn't be able to solve it. Is that what you're saying? Because you're not smart enough to solve it? I don't know. Or you think you're smart enough to be a detective? I don't know. No? You got to be killing me, Steven. <laughs> you... Steven. So. Steven, listen to me. We're real people, and we're here to talk to you. We're trying. We're. I like to think that we're friends. Okay, friends communicate back and forth. The only thing you said is yes or no, and I don't know. Okay, it makes me feel like you're treating me like you don't like me, and I feel like I've looked out for you today. Everything you said you wanted, I've, I've given you. I've tried to give you food several times. You know, I feel like we talked. You told me about how you like to look at porn on the internet. Um, you expressed to me that you're a virgin, correct? Yes. I mean, that's the kind of stuff you tell friends. You know what I'm saying? Right? Yes. Why would you not be honest with me? I am being honest. Stephen, it just doesn't feel like it, buddy. You know, I get the sense that there's something weighing heavy on your heart right now. And it's breaking you down. And you feel bad about it. I can tell you haven't slept much, have you, in the last few days, have you? No. Like something's weighing on your mind, ain't it? We were looking for Lauren. You started looking for Lauren yesterday. Yes. But you haven't slept in several days, have you? Yes. You have? Yes. Earlier when I talked to you, you said you hadn't slept in days. That This morning was the first time you was able to get any sleep was this morning for a little bit. No. I think that she was a friend of yours. Look at her right here. I think that she was a friend of yours. And I think something happened, Stephen. You used to watch her come in and out of her apartment, didn't you? No. I mean, then how were y'all friends? If y'all were, if me and you friends, we live next door to each other, Every time I see, look at when I see y'all, oh, that's my buddy going in. Because we're friends. I'm going to pay attention to when you come in and out. Didn't you just tell me that y'all were friends? Yes. But you don't. You didn't pay attention to when she came in and out? No. Steven, you're lying. Now you're lying. You're just lying. That's a lie. You, you ever see her come in and out of her apartment? Yes. You did? When was the last time? I don't remember. You don't remember? Like last week, maybe? I don't think so. 
think so. You don't think so? Steve, do you understand that everything that you're saying here doesn't make any sense at all? None. None. You totally contradict everything that relates to human behavior. We have skills to be able to observe things, to hear things, to see things. There are natural things out there that draw our attention every day. Such as when you're driving down the road and somebody hits the horn, you look around. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's just a natural reaction. If you're sitting in your living room, you hear the door slam next to you, you automatically think, my neighbor's home. Right? You're, you're telling me that those kind of things don't happen in your life. You asked if I watched. I didn't watch. Have you noticed that she's came in and out of our house in the last week or two? I don't remember. Throughout this interview, Stephen sat bolt upright in his chair. His two hands either placed on his knees in his lap or on the edge of the table in front of him. He sat like a statue, frozen in one spot. There was no fidgeting in his chair, no looking down at his hands. Didn't even look around the room. His head remained motionless, his eyes fixated straight ahead. There are cameras in interview rooms recording suspects as they answer questions, silently documenting their every move. Tiny red light flashes in the corner, the only indication the camera is active. Stephen knew those cameras were there. His robotic performance, statue posture, and refusal to move at any point, no doubt all manufactured and purposefully done to feed into his enactment. There were no indication of a worried and scared individual realizing the game was up, because the game wasn't up in Stephen's mind. The game was very much on. Steven. What happened to Lauren? I don't yeah. know. You like her, don't you? She's my friend. Did you ever think about having sex with her? No. You never tried to talk to her on a dating level? So you're telling me... You see that pretty girl right there? Yes. You're telling me you looked at a pretty girl like that and you never once thought ever? Man. She looks good. You never thought that? I don't understand. <laughs> what do you mean you don't understand? Did, you know how when you sit there and you see a girl walking down the road? And you say, man, that girl looks good. You ever see a good looking girl and you think to yourself, man, that girl looks good? Yes. You never thought that about her? Yes. So, you mean to tell me you look at porn on the internet and get off to that, but you never looked at her and said, man, I wonder what it'd be like to have sex with her? Yes. You have? No. Have you ever thought about what it would be like to have sex with Lauren? No. You've never imagined having sex with Lauren? No. Have you ever had sex with Lauren? No. What do you know about that body we found today? I don't know. You don't know? What if I told you that I believe that you do know? I don't. What if I told you that I could prove it? I don't know. You don't know? Is there a chance 
but you do admit that there's a chance that I possibly have evidence to show that you do have something to do with that body. Correct? I don't know. You don't know? Because if I hadn't done anything, I'd say, nope, there's no way. But you say you don't know. Why is that? Why do you say you don't know? Is there a chance that maybe something's there? No. Why did you say you don't know? Because I don't know. Because you're worried about something, maybe something that happened, that maybe something got mixed up with something, and you're worried about that? No. Then why do you say I don't know? Because I don't know. How would you not know? If I was asking you, did you just rob a bank? If you didn't, you'd say no, not I don't know, right? Right. So why do you say I don't know? Because I don't know. You don't know if you had anything to do with that body? I didn't. You didn't? No. Are you sure? Yes. What if I said I could prove that you did? I don't know. Could you explain it? I don't know. Today you told an investigator that you were worried about us possibly finding blood in your apartment, didn't you? I don't remember. You did? Now why would you be worried about that? We all looked in Lauren's apartment. Did you see blood? No. Then what would make you think that, that there was blood taken over there? Nothing would make you think that unless you saw it. Because, see, I didn't see no blood. None of the other Lawrence friends saw blood, but I know now that blood was there. And now I believe you saw it. You saw that blood. You know that blood was there. And that's why you're worried about it. No. Answering the detective's questions, Stephen sounded immature, tame, and naive. He claimed no understanding of what the detectives were asking of him. Over and over again, he said he didn't know in a pathetic voice, aimed to complete the illusion of a frightened, innocent young man. As Stephen was being interviewed, other officers were searching and seizing items from his apartment, ready for testing and further examination two pistols and a rifle, a black Canon camera, four-foot-long and six-foot-long sticks, a laptop, external hard drive, multiple flash drives, and a Nokia cell phone. All were seized and taken in for forensic examination. During this search, officers found a yellow and black Stanley brand hacksaw packaging in his bathroom. There was no signs of the hacksaw it once contained. Back at the detective bureau, the detectives were losing patience with Stevens' act. You're talking right now, does it not feel weird to you? No. Would you say that this is how you talk all the time? I don't understand. You're just not expressing yourself at all. Everything's with you is yes, no, I don't remember, I don't understand. You can't help me out with anything. You, there's nothing you can tell me to help me about this beautiful girl right here, Stephen. That was your friend. Nothing. 
You're going to let things go down like this? I don't know what you want. I want the truth, Stephen. I don't know where she is. Let me ask you this. You, I truly believe you don't know where she is right now. Where was she yesterday? I don't know. Liar. That's right. You're lying. Why are you lying, Stephen? I'm not lying. Yes, you are lying. How long do you continue to do it? She's got a mother and a father and a family out there that is sick over everything. Where's that little girl, Stephen? I don't know. Stephen, you know. Where? I don't know. Stephen. You're going to look at this right here, this little girl right here. And you're going to say you don't know? I know you know. I don't know. Yes, you know. What are you going to say tomorrow when I say we got your hair with the body? What are you going to say to me then? Because you know, like I go like that. Look at my hair. That's how easy it falls out. Look at all that on your head. You don't think nothing fell out? It did. It did, Stephen. We just wanted to give you an opportunity to tell it. So you didn't look like a monster at the end. Because you know what? I don't believe that you're a monster, Stephen. I believe that you're a good guy. You've been picked on. Girls didn't show you the respect that you deserved. You did something stupid. And I believe you feel bad about it. And that's why you're all freaked out right now. But I'm giving you the opportunity to get right. I'm giving you an opportunity to show everybody you're not a monster, that you feel bad about what happened. Your hair is there, man. Your hair is there. We got your hair with the body. How's that, Stephen? I don't know. Yes, you do know. Yes, you do know, Stephen. That's right, buddy. See that? Look at it. See how easy? It happens. And it happened to you. Why, Stephen? I don't understand. Oh, you understand? You understand exactly what I'm saying. See this stuff right here, your hair? Yeah, it fell out of your head when you was moving the body, Stephen. That's right. You remember moving the body? No. Yes, you do, Stephen. Why, man? What happened? Why? Tell me, bud. I didn't do it. Yes, you did, Stephen. Your head's with the body. Quit lying. 
We want you to, to tell it so that way people are understand you're not a monster. Things just, you got out of control. It's a sickness. Why'd you do it, Stephen? I didn't do Stephen, it. Stephen, why are you going to keep telling that? You hurt that girl. No, I didn't. Yes, you did, Stephen. You hurt her, man. She was screaming. Screaming, Stephen. Why? And I know you feel bad about it. I can see it in your face. What came over you, man? What happened, Stephen? I don't know. I know you don't know. You can't you couldn't control it, could you? I didn't do it. Stephen! How long are we gonna continue to do this? You did. Why is what I wanna know. I didn't do it. Stephen, you hurt that girl, man. And you got on the news today. That's right. You know what? You weren't talking like this on the news, buddy. Yeah. You hurt this girl. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. You hurt that girl. Why'd you hurt her, Stephen? I didn't. You hurt that girl. Did you try to make her have sex with you? I didn't. Huh? Do Who did it? I don't. They got your hair. They steal your hair and take it over there. Stephen, they steal your hair. They didn't, did they? Did they, Stephen? That's right. It's all sinking in right now. He knows is what you're thinking. Steven, I don't want it to be a game between me and you. I know it hurts, and I know you're not an awful person, and you want to tell it. Your hair was there, Stephen. We've all known it all along. We wanted just to give you an opportunity to tell what happened. Did y'all have sex? No. Did you try to have sex? No. You think about having sex? No. Liar. What kind of man doesn't think about having sex? You said earlier you like girls, right? Yes. You said she's a pretty girl, right? Yes. What'd you do to her, Stephen? I didn't do anything. You're lying. You hurt that girl. No, I didn't. Sure it did. And that's why you're having this massive meltdown right now. Because you can't live with yourself, can you? It's overwhelming you, isn't it? Tell the truth, Stephen. I didn't do it. Who did it? I don't know. Yes, you do, Stephen. Stephen had spoken to Macon police officers and detectives all that day. As notes were compared and information passed on, 
Detective Patterson learned of admissions that Stephen had made to fellow officers when he had been more talkative. Stephen had a number of condoms in his apartment, found by the search teams. When questioned about why he had them, when he had openly told them he was a virgin, Stephen made an unexpected confession. During 2008 and 2009, he had broken into two apartments in the Barristers Hall apartment complex. From both apartments, he had stole the condoms they'd found. The more officers learned, the more they realized there was something very wrong in the mind of Stephen McDaniel. In the final hours of Stephen's interviews, he had refused to respond to questions fully or change from his robotic-like demeanor. He may have been happy to confess to burglary, but he was not going to admit to murder. Take any medication? No. Have you ever taken any medication? No. Do you have any kind of mental problem? No. I mean, it's all over anyways. I just wanted to know what was going on tonight. The game's over, I mean. We know what you did to her, so we just want to know what you, if you were going to tell us or not. I didn't do anything. Well, that's what you say. But we know different, so you're fucked either way. You're fucked. We already know. And everybody out there, all your friends know that you're down here. Because of what happened to Lauren. So all those friends that you thought you had are not your friends anymore. Okay, there'll be no more video games. Alright. Oh. This is the end. Is there anything you want to say? I didn't do anything. That's what you say. That's what you say. Stick to your story. Because it's over. We're tired of talking to you. Okay. We know you killed her. We know you put her body in the trash can. Simple as that. The news media knows it. Glenda knows it. Your mother. Your sister knows it. Your sister's husband knows it. The one that used to beat your sister. He knows it. You know what he said? He said he's a crazy motherfucker is what he said. When I called him. That's your own family calling you crazy. Your own family said you're crazy. Nobody wants to see you. Nobody's coming to visit you. So you can sit there with that dumb look on your face. But it's over. You enjoyed yourself and it's all over now. Okay? Anything you want to say? I don't know. I didn't do anything. Well, that's what you say. But I'm telling you, you did. Okay? 
Simple as that. You're not in charge. I am. I just took it away from you. That's one thing you can't change, brother. You can't change that. You are no longer in charge of anything. Hmm? Got plenty of time to think now, don't you? Hmm? Yep. Got plenty of time to think. You thought you were smarter than everybody else, but you're not. You're not. The sad thing about it is you probably could have made something with your life. But you chose a different route because one, you don't have a girlfriend. And two, you're never going to get a girlfriend. I'm listening. I'm all ears. I don't know what you want me to say. Don't you say nothing. You're fucked either way. Do you understand that? I didn't do anything. That's what you, that's your side of the story. Thought you were smarter than everybody. But you fucked up. You fucked up. Somebody always leaves something in a crime scene. You fucked up. You fucked it up. First, I didn't really believe you had anything to do with it. I said, man, it couldn't have been him. He used to work down the DA's office with us. He's a good guy. He used to help us out. Friendly guy and everything. Couldn't be him. He couldn't have done something like that. Are you through with your little show you've been putting on all day? Hmm? Huh? Are you three? Hmm? You're not gonna win. Too much evidence. Too much evidence. At 5 a.m. on July 1st, 2011, Steve McDaniel was read his Miranda rights and arrested on charges of burglary. Photographs of his body were taken, samples from his hair, and fingernails catalogued and labeled. Stephen was officially under arrest and in police custody. The game, for now, was over. The following day, during a search of the laundry room at Barrister's Hall, officers found the missing hacksaw hanging up in a maintenance cupboard. Visible marks on the blade only added to the suspicion that this was the tool Stephen McDaniel had used to dismember Lauren Giddings. Exactly 10 days later, the FBI crime lab made contact with Macon police. They had been running tests on the fibers attached to the cotton shorts, found on Lauren's dismembered torso. They had found a match between those fibers and items of clothing from Stephen's apartment. The net was closing in. Stephen McDaniel had already demonstrated his unusual character, capable of flipping between personas in a disturbing display situational outward pretense. On July 26th, Detective Patterson carried out a telephone interview with a former roommate of Stevens. The pair had shared accommodation while studying for their undergraduate degrees at Mercer in 2007. 
The information this individual had laid bare, exactly how far Stephen's psyche was down the dark path, the twisted and disturbed. He's a self-proclaimed psychopath. He proclaimed often that he has no conscience and was incapable of feeling emotion. Talked almost nightly about how he would go about the perfect murder, but also wear shoes that were too small. He would do something to make him appear bald. He detailed different scenarios all the time. In fact, I was scared sometimes. That said, Stephen liked and trusted me, and I knew it. That's why I felt safe enough to stay where I was. I couldn't pick my own lock in my room. I tried several times, just to see if I could do it. Stephen could do it in under ten seconds. He demonstrated it to me once. Just to show how easily he could get to me if he wanted, then grinned. When I responded that I was twice his size, he told me he would use chloroform so that it would not matter how big I was. What Stephen relishes is power. He'll tell you. You don't have to ask him. Everything he does is the result of a power play. He is an odd duckling who looks weak, has one of the sharpest minds I have ever seen. Stephen said if he killed someone, he'd do it in a way to establish dominance over them. He always said he wanted to feel the power of having someone's life in his hands. He said he wanted them to beg, then to take it. I'm not sure what he did here, but he once said if he did kill someone, he'd dismember them, soak them somehow, and scatter the parts through the woods so no one would ever find them. He was convinced he was smarter than everyone else, and often bragged that if he did murder someone, that he'd never get caught. When I heard the news about the murder in Macon, and heard that Stephen was somehow involved, I watched the interviews he gave to the news media at the scene. Watching one particular interview, it struck me that Stephen's tone of voice, demeanor, and hand movements were not Stephen's normal mannerisms, but instead, nearly mirrored dialogue which he gave during a theater performance. When we were both undergraduates at Mercer University, I also recalled when seeing this, he informed me that he had no interest in the theater, but wanted to test himself to see if he was believable when telling a story. On August 2nd, Stephen McDaniel was charged with malice murder under Georgia's state law. Malice murder is the taking of a life with deliberate intent to do so. It involves forethought. In Stephen's case, express an obvious intention to kill. When he entered Lauren's apartment that night, he knew exactly why he was there, what he was going to do. The meager, pathetic character he displayed during his police interview was simply his creation, a layer of falsehood to hide his true self and the true actions he consciously chose to take on that night. The evidence against Stephen just kept coming. Over those few days, a forensic analysis was carried out on Stephen's laptop, hard drive, and thumb drives. What they found shocked even seasoned investigators. On one flash drive were 52 individual images of child pornography, adult males having intercourse with young girls around 10 years old, young boys of similar age being forced to perform sex acts on each other. Within the evidence seized from Stephen's apartment was a digital camera. Its contents would leave little doubt as to Stephen's obsession with Lauren. Two keys were also found in his apartment. There were keys he had no authority or right to possess. The evidence the lengths this individual was prepared to go to satisfy his fantasies. 
he had in his possession both the master key and a key to her apartment. He had a flash drive that belonged to her that contained hundreds of her personal photos. His computer history showed an interest in her Facebook and LinkedIn pages and sometimes would be searching uh, for images of her around the same time that he was looking up violent pornography. The linchpin in all this was when we found deleted video that he had used to surveil her home on the night it appears that she was murdered. And that was found on a camera in his possession. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. He took a wooden pole and he duct taped that camera to the end of the pole and then he held the pole up really high to peek inside her window. Within two months, all the evidence had been put to a Bibb County grand jury. Stephen McDaniel was indicted on charges of malice murder and 30 counts of sexual exploitation of children on November 15, 2011. It was held in custody at the Bibb County Jail, an experience that did nothing to change his solemn responses when brought back to the Detective Bureau for attempts at further interview. Hey, Stephen, how are you, buddy? All right. Stephen, uh, I can't got you tonight because I need to ask you a few more questions. I have nothing to say without my attorney. You don't want to hear what we have? No. I want my attorney. All right. Hang tight for a second. Look like you've been putting on a little weight in there, man. Dude, I'm just talking casual, not about anything right now. You can feel free to talk. You want anything to drink or anything? No. <sighs> Have you been eating good? Did he use the restroom or anything, Steve? No. What wing they got you on over there? I wish I could let mine grow up, but they won't let me have one working here, man. Has it reached that point where it started itching yet? See, if you don't feel comfortable with me talking, man, just let me know. I'm just trying to talk casually. I have nothing to say. Have I done something to upset you or anything? Have you been treated good down there at the Bibb County LEC? Like you're getting a little color back in your hands. Last time you looked so pale. And your eyes aren't as dark. Like you've been getting a lot better rest, man. Stephen, who is your attorney? Floyd Buford. Floyd Buford. 
stuff up. Don't leave that saw out. Come on. All right. Hang on there, marathon runner. It was April 2014 before Lauren's murder case moved its way through the courts and towards trial. Stephen McDaniel had been held in custody since his arrest. His bail application refused due to concerns of unsupervised access to children. If he were to return to his parents and family home, the Giddings family had filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Stephen, determined to seek justice for their daughter. December 2011, the Bibb County District Attorney made it clear he too was not about to let Stephen escape justice. Today, the Bibb County District Attorney's Office announced it plans to seek the death penalty against Stephen McDaniel, the man accused of killing and dismembering Mercer Law grad Lauren Giddings. This motion filed by the DA's office calls the murder, quote, outrageously or wantonly vile, horrible, or inhuman in that it involved depravity of mind. McDaniel has been in jail without bond since July 1st on unrelated burglary charges. He was indicted by a grand jury on November 15th on one count of murder and 30 counts of sexual exploitation of children. As the defense and prosecution teams move towards Stephen's trial date, set for April 28th that year, the discovery files were turned over to his defense team. The files contain the evidence against Stephen, the pieces of the puzzle that the prosecution intended to present aimed to achieve a conviction and a death sentence. Included were the multiple video files found on Stephen's digital camera in his apartment, secret videos he made through Lauren's window on the night prosecutors believed he took her life. Stalking, watching, and recording, Stephen McDaniel had been tracking Lauren Giddings. She was due to move out of her apartment in a matter of days, move on with her career and her life, taking her law degree on to the next level. The surveillance video Stephen made proved he was secretly watching her. They confirmed he viewed Lauren as prey, to be captured at a time of his choosing. They were evidence that simply had no defense. Stephen had spent three years protesting his innocence, maintaining his facade that he did not hurt Lauren and that he did not kill her. His trial for her murder was due to start less than seven days. Stephen intended to win over the jury and win his freedom, but now he could not deny the overwhelming wave of evidence the prosecution planned to unleash on him. Evidence that even he, as egotistical and self-righteous that he was, could not defend with any certainty. He decided against taking that risk. Stephen allowed his attorneys to enter into plea deal negotiations with the district attorney last hour realization that he could find himself on death row. The DA demanded a full guilty plea from Stephen, along with a written confession to the murder of Lauren. A confession that would tell the details of how he took her life. In exchange, Stephen would be sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for a murder. The sexual exploitation of children charges would be dropped. The burglary charges would be dropped and the Giddings would not pursue their wrongful death lawsuit against him. The deal was agreed in the final hours before the first hearing of his trial was due to start. The confession that Stephen wrote was cold and it was chilling. Stephen McDaniel is a manipulative liar who enjoys play-acting to turn situations to his own advantage. 
His confession is that of a depraved, cold-blooded killer. On Sunday, June 26, 2011, between the hours of 9 p.m. and midnight, Stephen McDaniel crept outside his apartment and took a few short strides to Lauren's apartment next door. With his digital camera mounted on a makeshift pole, Stephen positioned the lens to peer inside Lauren's apartment window. There were blinds. He spent time outside that night, repeating the exercise to try and get a better look, to capture Lauren unsuspecting and unknowing. When he silently padded back to his own apartment, he made the decision that tonight he would make his move. At around 4.30 a.m. that morning, Stephen once again left his own apartment, turned to the right, and stopped outside Lauren's front door. He used the key for Lauren's apartment that he had hidden in his possession for an unknown period of time. He had used it on numerous occasions to let himself in, to steal her underwear, a flash drive full of her personal photos. That night, however, Lauren was home, asleep in her bedroom. She was unaware of the danger she was about to meet. Stephen let himself in, disabling her burglar bar as he went. His internet search history would provide evidence of how he had researched the most efficient method of disabling quickly. Once inside, he made his way up the short hallway to Lauren's bedroom. He stood by her bed and watched her while she slept. As he moved forward, the floor creaked, a sound loud enough and unusual enough in the middle of the night to wake Lauren. When she awoke, she was confronted with a figure wearing a dark mask standing next to her bed in silence. Lauren yelled to get the fuck out of her apartment. Instead, Stephen jumped on top of the bed and began his attack. I leaped across the bed onto her, and I grabbed her around the throat. We tumbled out of the bed to the floor, and in her struggle to get away, she moved her legs and her lower body under her bed, preventing her from getting away or kicking me. She was wearing the pink running shorts when she died and I never removed them. They were found on her torso just as I had left them. I dragged her into the bathroom and placed her in the bathtub. I removed her limbs and head, wrapped them in several black trash bags, separately discarded them in the Mercer Law School dumpster. During the struggle, as Lauren desperately fought for her life, she managed to pull Stephen's mask off his face. She stared directly into the eyes of her killer, immediately recognized who he was. She shouted at him, Stephen, please stop. The mild-mannered, polite, if a little odd classmate next door, who she had never feared, was now trying to kill her. The last face Lauren getting saw, as her life drained away, was that of Stephen McDaniel. Stephen did not begin to dissect and dismember Lauren's body immediately after he had killed her. Once he placed her inside her tub in the bathroom, he left her apartment, locking the door behind him. He returned to his own apartment and spent the rest of that Sunday playing video games, catching up on some sleep. All the while, Lauren lay dead in her apartment next door. Later that night, Stephen returned to Lauren's body. Using a hacksaw, he sawed through her neck and decapitated her. He removed each limb, each finger and both thumbs in the same way. A small bathroom space awash with blood as he worked methodically with a basic hacksaw. 
Each body part was wrapped in trash bags and carried out to the university bins, where he disposed of them. Lauren's torso was the largest and most difficult to carry. His disposal of Lauren was timed to coincide with the garbage collections that were due that week. The rest of Lauren's body has never been found. Stephen thought he had covered everything. He thought wrong. In his confession, he also made feeble attempts to explain his behavior. They were words on paper written by a mind who had turned the concealment of his horrific acts into a game. It was a game he had been confident he was going to win. Now facing a minimum of 30 years behind bars, his mindset had shifted once again. All of these words and suggestions for his acts are based on the same simple and uninformative few words that he had relied upon in his police interview. I'm divided in mind, unable to account for how I could have committed these horrible acts and, at the same time, also be able to carry on daily routines. It's difficult for me to explain why I killed Lauren and attempted to conceal my deeds the way I did. I know it was very wrong. I'm not delusional or without morals or decency. Something in my makeup, my psychology, my neuropathy, my own particular pathology perhaps, must explain it. If I could take back what happened, I would. On April 21st, 2014, Stephen McDaniel pleaded guilty to murder under the plea deal agreed with the Bibb County District Attorney. After the hearing, DA David Cook gave a press conference explaining the decision to grant Stephen a plea. Today, Stephen McDaniel entered a guilty plea to the murder of Lauren Giddings. The guilty plea gives Lauren's family and friends answers that they have wanted and that they deserve. Because of this guilty plea, Stephen McDaniel will never again be able to deny that he and he alone is responsible for Lauren Giddings' death. As a part of this guilty plea, Stephen McDaniel was required to provide an allocution that is a detailed admission of guilt. This gives Lauren's family and friends answers that they have wanted. Had we gone to trial, these details of his guilt would not have been required even if Stephen McDaniel had been found guilty. We never would have known exactly what happened to Lauren. We never would have known how she died or what became of her body. Had Stephen McDaniel been found guilty at trial, he would have been entitled to a series of appeals. Now he will not. I do not expect Stephen McDaniel to ever be released from prison, even though he has been sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. The terms of this guilty plea require that Stephen McDaniel serve 30 years in prison before he can be first considered for parole in the year 2041. The heinous nature of this crime confirmed today in Stephen McDaniel's own words, will follow him into any potential parole hearing. Because of the detailed admission of guilt, I do not expect any parole board will ever agree to his release. I fully expect Stephen McDaniel to spend the rest of his life behind bars. Stephen McDaniel was sentenced to life in prison. His future as a prosecution attorney shattered 
This route will never be available to him. Bright and intelligent, he could have achieved in life. Instead, before he embarked on his law-abiding career, he had some twisted internal fantasies and desires to test out. Those last days before Lauren moved out of Barrister's Hall would be his final opportunity to strike the woman he'd been watching for years. Lauren Giddings' funeral was held on August 6, 2011, at the St. Mary of Mills Catholic Church in her hometown of Laurel. At Stephen McDaniel's sentencing hearing, a devastated mother stood before the court. Karen Giddings gave an honest and dignified statement about her daughter and the man who had taken her life. Lauren exuded such a light that she rarely left anything she met unaffected. We who have the pleasure of knowing her are scarred forever by the sheer, exquisite pain of missing her. Though we hang on to her memories of such a vibrant, vibrant soul and are forever blessed. Though I have prayed for Stephen McDaniel and his family, I still find it very difficult to comprehend how one human being could cause such harm on another. We have lived going on three years now, an unimaginable nightmare, wondering what kind of horror our daughter endured. Stephen McDaniel has robbed our family and friends of so much. As parents, we not only lost our devoted daughter, but a truly good friend. Lauren was a valued, unique treasure in our life, capable of so many possibilities, including her own flesh and blood, our potential grandchildren. My spirituality has been tested. My soul is burdened by the struggle to forgive, a central virtue of my faith. But the true devastation is the loss to those who were deprived the chance to ever know the wonder of Lauren Teresa. Stephen McDaniel hid his real personality under layers of an unassuming, odd, and quiet exterior. But behind that front lay a calculating young man who enjoyed game-playing, manipulation, and acting. All characteristics he employed during taking Lauren's life and then trying to get away with her murder. There is deep-rooted depravity in this individual, one that without being forcibly detained and kept away from the public, and from women especially... Stephen McDaniel will act upon again.